It isn't just hot outside for runners this summer season, because things are heating up at Running Warehouse. Hoka's breaking new ground this month with the introduction of the CLO Road. Our recent podcast guest, Running Warehouse's Connor Blaylock, called it a nimble shoe that makes you feel connected to the ground, and if you're running a 5K or 10K with lots of tight turns, you're going to feel a lot more confident in it. Featuring a Piva midsole that's light and fast, it's a shoe that you'll want to put on your shortlist this race season. Also just in at Running Warehouse is Saucony's brand new Triumph 21. Last year's version was already one of our favorite trainers of the year, and this year's changes to the upper have made it even better. Get ready to log hundreds of fun, bouncy miles for your marathon season ahead. From the Asics Kayano 30 to the Hoka Mach X to new apparel from Rabbit, there's lots of new exciting trainers and gear hitting the shelves. Find it all today at runningwarehouse.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Docs of Running podcast, where we, a group of doctors of physical therapy, discuss the art and science of running and the stuff that we put on our feet. Today at the roundtable, I'll be your host. I'm Nathan, and we also have Dr. David Salas with us, and he is one week away from his wedding day, so uh, by the time this releases, he'll be a married man, so excited for your for your wedding week. You, you guys feeling ready? I think so. I think so. We... Uh... We put a lot of legwork into it up front, you know, made sure the daughter eyes cross her T's. Now it's kind of just cleaning up small things um, and just focusing on enjoying the day. So I think for the most cool. part, we're, we're pretty much there. Great. Excited for you. So today on the podcast, we, have, we are opening up the mailbag. We have gathered a bunch of questions from you all, and we're excited to dive into those. We always find these episodes to be very fun, and therefore our subjective for the day is just putting out the feelers for more questions. What things do you want us to talk about? What questions do you have about footwear, about training, about injuries, um, about the cross-section between those things? And we can put those in our bucket of things that we pull from. I should probably use bag because I said mailbag. So we'll put those in our bag that we can pull from at future times. Uh, But today we have a list of questions that David and I are going to run through. Excited to talk through them all. So let's just get started. Uh, So our first question is from... Uh, Marissa runs and they asked, I use the same models of shoes. She rotates between them for easy and long runs. Should there be a difference? And I'm assuming she means in the models themselves. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I'm going to assume your name's Marissa if your handle is Marissa runs. Um, that's a great question, Marissa. I think it depends. We say it depends all the time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the way I look at it is these shoes are tools. And we say that all the time as well. If I think it depends on the goal of your long run and what you're trying to accomplish. For your easy days, the goal is to be easy. And some long runs, at least in my training cycles, some are easy. Some of them are time on feet where you're just going out and you're running for two and a half hours, two hours, whatever it is. And in that situation, they can totally be the same shoe. I've had plenty of great runs like in the Saucony Ride 16 or the Topo Cyclone 3, just normal daily trainers that I do my shoes in. Saucony Triumph, I've had some solid long runs in. Um, However, like a day like today, I had a 90-minute tempo in the middle of the long run. And so I probably don't want to be doing tempos in those shoes. Like, could you? Sure. But like... If I have the means to have another shoe, I will probably choose another shoe. So that would be my answer for that one. But if the goal is just time on feet and getting out there and having a long run, then I think it's totally doable to have the same shoe for both of those. Yeah, I'd agree. And I think this 
this question comes from, I don't know if they've been following us for a while, but there's a study out there about shoe rotations and how that may influence injury risk. It came out in 2016, um, and there haven't been any studies that I know of that have come out that have like replicated the findings. But what they found in this study is that if somebody is using their primary shoe less than 59% of the time, it can decrease the injury um, incidence in the time of the time period of that study uh, by 30, I think it was 31%. So you can have a basically a third decrease in injury injury incidence by rotating shoes. Um, And in that study, they did have two different models. So it's not like they were rotating between two pairs of the same shoe. But what I don't know for sure in Marissa's question is if they're asking, hey, I rotate between a lot of different shoes for some of my workouts and stuff, but for my easy runs and my long runs, can I use the same thing? So for me, if I were in a position where I was where I was buying my shoes, just to be frank, because like, we're getting sent a lot of things for test, what I would do this year is I would have a pair of Nova Blasts um, that I would use for my easy runs because I like them for that, and I would use them for my long runs because I've enjoyed them for that too. So I'd have a Nova Blast 3, even one pair that I just use for both of those, but then I would have a second different model um, that I would use for workouts or other types of runs during the week just to get a true rotation. Um, Because the idea right now, um, operating theory on why shoe rotations help, is that it's a slightly different stimulus underfoot So it slightly varies the amount of stress or strain on the structures under your foot and in your body. And so to get the benefits of a shoe rotation, you need more than just giving the foam a break by using the same model for everything. Um, But it's really saying find two types of shoes, do different models that you enjoy so that you get a slightly different stimulus. Um, But if you're already doing that, then I would say using the same model for your easy runs and your long runs, if they're both comfortable at those paces, go for it. Um, do you agree with that, David, or anything to add on to that? No, I agree. And I think the way I interpreted Marissa's question was because we have the, the question here written out and in right. parentheses we see rotate. And so I'm assuming there's already a rotation of some kind there and the question is doubling the easy and long shoe. So I'm guessing yep. for those workout days there's something else and for the race days there's probably something else. Um, So that was kind of my assumption upon answering that question. And in doing so, I feel like we are both on the same page there. I agree. Yeah. And and my take too is like, I think there's a lot of versatile shoes out there that can do the easy runs, that can do some, some workouts for you. Like you mentioned the Cyclone. Like that shoe you could have for everything. And so if you had two do-it-all shoes, there's your rotation. Right. Use them for your long runs, use them for your easy runs, use them for your tempos. There isn't like a magic formula that we know right now. It's more find a couple shoes that you like, use them for what you like them for. Um, we have some more questions later down that we're going to ask, that people are asking, what are these shoes for? What are they similar to? And some people's going to like one shoe for one thing. Somebody else is going to like it for another. Like, I think a good example is, David, you like you've liked the Kinvara like twelve. I remember that for long oh, runs. Yeah, yeah. Like that was your like long run monster, and that just doesn't work for a lot of other people like <laughs> myself. But I think that's a good example where it's like, don't be afraid to use what works for you for something that's it's not advertised for, or something that we or other people reviewing shoes say that it's necessarily for. Um, we try to be helpful in helping people determine what works for certain categories, but it's our experience is as much of a clinical background as we have. Um, it's still our experience, but anything else to add on this question? No, I think by even like what you just said, the experience 
and every body is different. Everybody's biomechanics are different. Your experience may be different than ours, and that's totally okay. Um, and and knowing that the shoe that works for you is the shoe that you're going to go and take out on that day probably anyways. If you're doing a 20-mile long run, you probably don't want to run in a shoe that you don't like. So with that little bit, yeah, take take the shoes that you like and continue to use them. And I think it is healthy to have a rotation, and I think... You know, two, three shoes is probably all you need. Yeah. I think uh, another consideration is thinking about, you know, is there something to be said about using multiple different kinds of shoes for your long runs? Like, is there a rotation of rotating long run shoes? And in terms of like research evidence, there isn't really anything there to define how you should actually implement a rotation. It's as, Right now, it's as simple as using your primary shoe less than 59% of the time. That said, I think when you, when, when you think about what should I use for my long runs and should I rotate shoes, I do think that's where you start to think about what am I going to race in? Um, and if your racing shoe is going to be the same as your training shoe, then I would just use your training shoe to get used to that and be comfortable. But if you are going to do a race in a different type of shoe, um, I would I would say get a couple of your long runs in in that shoe that you plan to use on race day so that you feel comfortable in it, you feel mentally confident. Um, I think that's where considering shoe rotations for the actual long runs might be beneficial. Um, but I don't think that there's enough percentage mileage in a week to say you need to rotate which shoe you use for a long run. All right, we are ready for the next question. Um, this is from Jason Vila Campa, and they're asking for a comparison question. And I'm going to pitch this one to David because I have not ran in one of these shoes. But um, they are asking Mach X or Endorphin Speed Three. Looking for a speed workout shoe slash race day shoe for a half. So maybe David, give us a little breakdown of the. Uh, Mach X, since we haven't talked about that much or at all on here yet. Um, and obviously just give us a little background on the Speed 3 and then your comparison between the two. Totally, yeah. I mean, looking at the Mach X, I don't have any spe- like specs on me. Um, it's a shoe that we just got. I mean, thankfully I have, I think, 27-ish miles on the shoe so far. I mean, I just got it this week, so it's still pretty fresh. But um, this is the Mach X. So Hoka essentially is doing a rocker profile. They're putting a plate in the shoe. It's very rigid. I mean, like I can bend it, but like this thing is pretty rigid. And it just follows that platform. It's got a good amount of sole flaring through the forefoot, a heel. I mean, it, it's essentially a built-up mox with a slightly softer topsole and then yeah. a, uh, a plate and then an actual outsole versus the rubberized DVA. So they're trying to make a little bit more of a, I guess you could say, responsive mock X for workouts, those types of things. I just pulled up specs so I could run through them really quick. Perfect. So the weight in a men's size 8, or sorry, a men's size 10 is 9.4 ounces or 266 grams. The women's size 8 is 8 ounces or 227 grams. Just Hoka has switched their sample sizes. So just keep in mind that most time men's and women's are reported in men's size 9 and women's size 7. So... Um, you might see a little bit higher number here than you'd expect from other models uh, that are reported in 
things like what we produce on our website. So again, 9.4 ounces, 266 grams for men's size 10, 8.0 ounces, 227 grams for women's size 8. The stacks are different between men's and women's. The men's stack is 39 millimeters in the heel and 34 in the forefoot. Women's is a little lower, 37 in the heel, 32 in the forefoot. Um, and then, like you said, they have the, the PIBA and the EVA, so it's that dual density, um, and coming in at $180. Yeah, and I, I feel like that's pretty comparable with my experience. It feels pretty high up. The plate's noticeable. The weight does feel heavier than the previous mock, like the Mach 4. Actually, someone literally asked me today, point blank this morning, and they were like, what do you think of the Mach X compared to the Mach 4 and our, or Mach 5? And... Five. Um, I was like, it's honestly, it feels a little bit heavier, but I do kind of, at least I had one run in it up until this point. I did 21 in the shoe this morning, so that's how I got my 27. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I was like, I only have one run in it so far, but it, it feels a little bit higher up. It feels a little bit heavier, but the plates does, the plate and the foam do feel a little bit more responsive. Um, with that said, I think that natural transition you get in the Mach 5 is taken away a little bit by how rocker this shoe is and how stiff the plate is. Um, so it feels like something that would be nice for a long rhythmic effort. And essentially that's what today was. And today I had a 90 minute tempo, but I referenced earlier that was this morning. And so it was two hours and 15 ish minutes of running with a 90 minute tempo. And for me, marathon pace, I, I mean, I don't know what it would be right now. It's probably like five thirty ish. Um, and we did it at five forty five average. And so it's like, I don't know just a little bit off of that pace where it's a controlled but still fast enough where you're working. And uh, it did great for that. Like I actually really like it for kind of like a controlled, rhythmic, but still up-tempo type of effort. Um, Looking Mm -hmm. at the Endorphin Speed 3, I actually think there is a difference between the experience of these shoes because running like fast, fast, this isn't really this being the Mach X for the listeners. I don't really think I'd want to run fast, fast in this. I don't think I'd want to go on the track and or do mile repeats or uh, any of those types of efforts in the Mach X. I think this really is going to shine more as a long effort shoe, whether it be a long run or a straight up tempo, whether it's five to 10 miles or more or beyond whatever. Um, but I don't really see it being in that wheelhouse of uh, shorter reps. I think this is really going to shine more as kind of like that performance trainer leaning more on the trainer side, but still having performance-esque components. Hopefully that answers the question for the Mach X. Yeah, I got a couple questions yeah. off of it too, just because, like I said, I have not ran in the Mach X. Um, and I also have some specs just to remind people for the Speed 3, the weight uh, for size 9 is 8.1 ounces or 229 grams, or 7.2 ounces and 204 grams for women's size 8. Um, the stack is 36.28, so there's a little bit higher drop there. Uh, statically measured. Um, what do you? Uh, my my big questions for you are like, how does it feel from like a like a bending stiffness side of things? Like, does one feel like it operates more on the rocker, more flexible? Totally. Which one gives you more of that bounce? Like, how how would you define those differences? Yeah, and I, I was about to get into that once I started speaking about the endorphin speed three. Um, the Mach X is stiffer. The Mach X feels like it relies more on that rocker geometry. Really wants you to get into a rhythm. And the Endorphin Speed 3 having the nylon plate, like it's it's just a lot more flexible. Like you can you can bend this thing pretty easily. It's it's got some rigidity and it's got some pop to it, but it's more flexible. And actually for faster efforts, I actually like that. I mean we you mentioned the Topo Cyclone earlier. 
that's a shoe that's very flexible up front, but it still has a P-back midsole. It's one of my favorite shoes on the planet right now. And I can rip things on the track. I can do whatever I want in that shoe. And I think of shoes like the Adidas Takumi Sen 9. You know, it's a racing shoe, but it's more flexible up front than all of these other shoes that we're looking at. And a lot of them, when they're looking at this metabolic efficiency or how they're operating, they're, they want it to settle into this rhythm, have this rocker, make you work less hard. But that's also for longer periods of time at a submaximal effort, right? And so when you want to go for a maximal effort, the goals change. And so I, I think you notice with a lot of these flats, when they're designing for shorter distances, some of them are emitting plates altogether, or they're putting a more flexible plate, or they're putting a little shank in there, like the streak fly had a little shank, right? Mm-hmm. And then Takumi Sen had the plastic rods. The Cielo Road, I don't believe, has a plate. The mm-hmm. uh, Saucony, oh my goodness, why am I blanking? And I love that shoe too. Why am I, why am I blanking? Saucony. I'm blanking too. Uh, it's right there. It's literally right there. I'm looking at it. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry, Andrea. Oh my God. The Saucony. Uh, sinister. Saucony Sinister. No plate. Nailed it. Yes. Nailed it. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they have a little bit more flexible designs because it lets you lever off of your foot the way your foot likes to do it. And it doesn't get in your way with doing that. And could that fatigue your calves a little more? Sure, but you're not going as far. And so um, with that in mind, the Endorphin Speed 3 does come off being a little bit faster. And it's a full P-Bax midsole. The plate's a little bit more flexible. It does feel a little bit lighter on the foot. The stack's a little bit lower. You feel a little closer to the ground. It's a shoe that like, if I had to do mile repeats or go on the track with, I, I could do it, you know? And I think it's one of those more versatile options where, like, it can do a little bit of everything pretty darn well. Um, And people use it for their marathon racers all the time, you know. And Mm -hmm. I think if I had to choose between a fast workout session, I would go Endorphin Speed 3. And based on the question, I mean, was it looking for a speed workout shoe slash race day shoe for a half? And I think the it just based off of no other context, I think if I had to choose between these two, I'm going to go Endorphin Speed 3. I see the Mach yeah. X more as a training companion, and I see it as a really solid shoe for long efforts. But I don't see myself lacing it up for something where I'm truly trying to run fast. Where And I probably would tr- choose something else over the Endorphin Speed 3 personally, but if I'm deciding between those two... I would lean Endorphin Speed 3. And I think another shoe that would be worth bringing up that I feel is in the same category, I mean, A, I mean the Topo Cyclone, but But I would say the Adidas Audios 8. And so lightweight shoe, you have Light Strike Pro from basically the front half of the shoe. It's fully embedded. You've got good continental traction. It's lightweight. You have flexibility, but still some rigidity by having that like rod that goes through there. I can hammer hill repeats. I can hit the track. It can be a short distance racer. Like I think they made a good change from what the Audios was. And they kind of went back to its roots a little bit because the Audios used to be the racing shoe for Adidas. You know, before, I mean, the Takumi Sen too, but like the Audios has always been a racing shoe first. And I feel like it started getting a little bit more trainer-like, a little bit more trainer-like, and they kind of beefed it up. And then it almost like lost its racing appeal. And I think they wanted to kind of revamp that and they they stripped it down. They made it lighter. They made it faster. 
And I think that really comes across in the Audio Sate. Not that this is a plug for the Audio Sate. I like all of these shoes. But yeah. um, I think that could be another option, especially if you like a little bit more of a firmer feel underfoot, because that also is what this comes down to, too. If you like a soft, bouncy feel, that those P-Bags midsoles that you see in the Endorphin Speed 3, that you see in the Topo Cyclone, um, New Balance Rebel, any of those kinds of shoes, um, you're going to have a much softer underfoot experience. So if you want something that's a little bit firmer, the Audios 8, I think, delivers pretty well in that category. And the Mach X is a little bit of a hybrid of both, but it just doesn't feel as fast to me. Yeah. So from what it sounded, you kind of said what your pick would be, and then you're, I also hear you saying for somebody, if you're if you're looking for a half marathon or workout shoe that is very like rhythmic and steady and stiff, Mach X direction. If you're looking for more versatile, maybe something that you can actually like push in a little bit more, give it a little bit more effort, feel like you're doing a little bit more with the shoe, um, speed three. Yeah. Kind of that differentiation. Cool. And then obviously the other options that are a little bit lower, a little bit more ground feel, but still giving you enough protection for that stuff if you wanted to go that route. All right. So a question we got here is common. So not from a specific individual. This is one that's come from multiple people. So we don't have a specific handle to give a shout out to here. But the question is, can you compare the Convara Pro to the Endorphin Speed? And what shoes are the Convara Pro similar to? Sure. Um, So I'll be kind of the guy on this one because you haven't ran in the Convara Pro yet. Um, But I have about 75 miles in my Convara Pro. um, And I would say the, the Pro and the Speed are very, very, very different underfoot experiences. Like the... You you just talked about what the endorphin speed feels like, and I don't have much to add to that. Very, and I only have my, <laughs> I only have my run run shield uh, version left. But it's, it's great. Shoe. I will never <laughs> so give good. that away. I, that is like my go to, like in the rain, go fast, whatever. Yeah, this it's the best. On you know the I the one thing it's the best for winter workouts for me when it's really cold out too. It's just is amazing. The only thing is I would love it to just modify the outsole just a yeah little bit i think i said the same thing yeah when it's I not the, the not the point of the conversation but <laughs> um you know with the with the speed three it, it does feel so lightweight underfoot you get that full like a bouncy softer feel underfoot you get that whole thing here and it does have some flexibility to it and you you can feel all of that in the speed three the kinvara pro is extremely stiff you know, this is a very stiff forefoot. It's got a three-quarter length plate, but it starts here and moves forward. So in terms of what you feel in terms of flexibility, that it's going to be stiff through the whole forefoot. So you're operating off of that rocker platform, and it does run a bit firmer than the Speed 3, and that's partially because most of the undercarriage um, in the dual-density midsole is power run. So you get that firmer bottom feel um, with a little bit of softness on the top because on the top you have you know, a thick insole of Power Run Plus, but then you also have the PB that's sandwiched between those two things. So ultimately in terms of like just what it feels like cushioning wise underfoot, the Pro is, or the Kinvara Pro is notably firmer um, in comparison to the speed and more stiff in comparison to the speed because you do have a full carbon plate or a three quarter length carbon plate, but full through the forefoot. And so you really operate off of this rocker, which also if you compare the two, is a bit more aggressive. You can just, if you're watching, you can see that there's, it seems like there's a bit more of an angle um, on the on the Pro, Kinvara Pro. 
I feel like I have to keep saying Canvara because there's also no, the I think it's Endorphin fair. Pro. So yeah, I mean with Saucony, um, when you say the Pro, most people probably think Endorphin Pro. So Endorphin Pro. I also think this isn't also the question, but I uh, we had the Saucony team on last week. It was good to hear their explanation of why they called it Canvara Pro because it's so different than the Canvara. I also think it leads to some confusion about the utility of the shoe potentially, or at least for what I found that I like it for and what they said, and even what they said that it functions best at because um, it has the pro title, but in terms of like what I enjoyed using it for most, it was not race efforts. Long run shoe, like I took this on a 16 like 16 and a half mile run last weekend and I was going really easy and that's where I just fell into rhythm and felt like the shoe just had tons of cushioning rolled really nicely with my mechanics. The rockers positioned really well for me. So it just really works there. Um, and it, it does give you just enough of a spring, but when I push into it, it doesn't seem to give more back as I give more effort. So it just, it, cause it stays rigid, stays a little bit firmer. Um, not to say I couldn't get workouts in. I did a pretty solid, like 10 K effort tempo in this where I did, um, three miles at tempo pace and it came along for the ride just fine. It did feel, it feels heavier. Like it feels bottom heavy, which is where the weight is distributed because of the types of foams that are in here. Um, so in terms of the differences, it's really that a little bit firmer, way more stiff, and just not as top-end speed-ready. It's really, for me, I enjoyed it most at those easier paces. Like when I'm feeling beat up, I'll take out the Canvara Pro and just go on an easy run or the long runs. Um, or if I'm doing a little bit of, of speed work in there, but nothing nothing long and hard, um, that I would pr- prefer to use the Speed 3-4. So that's kind of how I compare those two. They're so they're honestly so different um, that I wouldn't really be like, oh, I'm really between these two shoes because they're similar. They they sit in very different categories. I'd actually say that the Canvara Pro is closer to the shift than it the Endorphin Shift than it is to the Endorphin Speed, um, just because the Endorphin Shift um, like has. I actually have it here. Also my run shield version. <laughs> you know, it's got a lot of foam underneath. Um, so it still has a lot. I think this one, when they got to the three, they had a 40 mil, 40 mil stack. Yeah, I think um, so. And because it was so thick and because it's all power run, the forefoot was also pretty stiff. So you were, you were still operating off of this rocker. And in terms of run experience and what I gravitated towards using it for, the shift was my long run shoe. And funny enough, like the longest run I've done in both of those shoes was the same route. So it's this like beautiful run along this Creek and it's got for our area, the most elevation I can find. <laughs> but, um, so I've taken them both on the same like route and I just remember them feeling pretty similar in terms of rhythm and using that four foot rocker just because they have a similar bending stiffness profile. They both sit on the slightly firmer end. The Canvara pro is definitely softer than the shift. Um, and it has a little bit less structure to it and it can definitely go faster than the shift could for me. And you have a little bit more responsiveness, but they sit a little bit more similar in terms of, of ride. Um, the other shoes that I think sit in a similar camp as the Kinvara Pro are the, and I haven't tested the newest version, but the original SC Trainer, because they both are a little bit heavier. They're both very maximally stacked, um, and they have a very stiff rocker with this, you know, forefoot, and, and they're geared for that kind of like long runs, training runs, that kind of thing. So I think those two are very similar. 
And then in terms of uh, stack height, the Super Blast is probably the other shoe that's worth comparing to the Convara Pro, though I they feel different. Like I feel like I could go take I've considered using the Super Blast for a half marathon race because it is much lighter and it feels lighter and it feels bouncier. Um, it doesn't have a plate, but it's still very stiff. So I think, um, you know, the the Super Blast has a little bit more top end speed capabilities, but they both can do that kind of long run, feel cushioned. Um, this one feels so- the Super Blast is definitely softer and slightly more flexible, um, but it's also you know, what is it, 45 more dollars? Because I think that the Kinvara Pro is coming in at 180 and the Super Blast is 225 So that's a big difference in price. And they, they do sit in slightly different categories because um, I do think the Super Blast could be used more easily for me for like a both training and racing, whereas unless I was going to go do an, like an easy effort marathon, I wouldn't pick the Kinvara Pro. So... That's a that's a couple of the comparisons I would make to it. Do you have any other comparisons? I know you haven't ran in it, or just cu- ones you're curious about from me from my perspective. Yeah, I think it's it's hard to compare when you haven't run in it. But I I mean I mainly yes. think based on what it sounds like, it sounds like a high stack rockered sharp toe spring, like just like geometry driven shoe. And so I would probably picture something kind of like the Hoka Bondi. I picture something. And that's probably a little bit heavier. I, I know the Kinvara Pro is a little bit more of a yeah. streamlined design. Um, yep. I think the SC Trainer is Actually, a great parallel, just based on what I'm hearing. But um, and I have a pair. I, this is on me. I haven't run in it because with us testing so many shoes, we tend to prioritize certain ones that we're yep. currently reviewing. And it's for only yep. that reason that I haven't run in it. Otherwise, I would actually love to get some miles on it. But, you did make me think of another yeah. shoe, though, David, um, just to bring up in terms of how aggressive the rocker feels. So if you've ran in any of the Glide Ride oh, version, yeah, yeah. like any of the versions of the Glide Ride, that one feels like really fall-forward rocker. Like you really can fall off the ledge on that thing. It's not quite as aggressive in the Kinvara Pro. A little bit more measured, a little bit, you know, so like the rocker of, again, the Shift or the Bondi would actually fit kind of the the rocker profile of this. This is probably a little more aggressive than the Bondi. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that was another one worth mentioning because it's not like the rocker's so aggressive that you're falling forward like in those glide rides, which I think they've discontinued that shoe, which is interesting. Um, but that's kind of where I feel like the Kinvara Pro sits. Yeah, I think that's great. All right, well, moving on to our next question. Unless, did you have something? No, I'm good. All right, you're making a face there. I don't know. I never know with you. Keep me on my toes. Uh, <laughs> so our next question, we're moving categories now. So we're, we're, we're leaving the endorphin speeds here. We're going to go into something a little bit more clinical here. Um, this question comes from Heavy Dad Lifts. It's a solid handle, by the way. So I hope you appreciate the shout-out. But question, doing this Silbernagel Silbernagel protocol for... Cybernagel, yep. Cybernagel? Cybernagel. Cybernagel, there we go. I was like, Cybernagel? How do you get all out of that Cybernagel protocol for Achilles tendonitis? Run before or after Achilles rehab? Yeah, so I'm curious to get to know this person a little more, like how they stumbled upon this protocol, if they're a rehab professional or if they were recommended it by somebody but um it's funny so 
Uh, Karen Cybernagel was one of my professors actually in school, and so I know her decently well. And she uh, did a, is a huge researcher in the world of Achilles tendinopathy. So she came out with a um, just for background for people on what this is. She came out with a a, um, a proposal for how to return to running activities af- with Achilles tendinopathy and. In conjunction with that proposal for the framework, she also did a randomized control trial where half the people were given this rehab protocol and weren't allowed to run until a certain point, and the other people were given the rehab protocol and were allowed to run within certain parameters, and both groups did the same. So what's exciting about that is if you follow a certain protocol in terms of uh, symptom irritability. It's called the pain monitoring model. Um, You should be able to continue running with Achilles tendinopathy without risk of worsening your condition, and you can have the same amount of improvement. It won't slow your rehab process. Um, So that's kind of the little bit of background. And what this protocol looks like is, again, you have to use the pain monitoring model for your symptoms, which basically says symptoms can't get more than a 5 out of 10 during the activity. And symptoms can be pain or stiffness um, during the activity, after the activity, the morning after the activity, and you can't have worsening symptoms week to week. So if you type in pain monitoring model into Google, it's honestly pretty intuitive, um, but it's also nice that it's been validated through ultrasound imaging research. So they basically would look at like the collagen alignment of the tendon as they went through this pro- protocol, and you can use this pain monitoring model to keep your tendon progressing in the right direction. So you had to follow those rules. Then you were given a combination of daily Achilles rehab, and then depending on where you're at in the stage of the rehab, you had a couple days of heavier Achilles loading. So like eccentrics or bounding or just heavy concentric stuff. So this person's basically asking the question, hey, I have these heavier loading days or I'm doing my daily portion of the rehab. Should I do that before my run or should I do that after my run? And in terms of the study protocol and how this was developed, um, you could go either way. So the the big thing is not violating the pain monitoring model. My uh, preference on this is to actually get your rehab in prior to the run, especially your daily loading exercises. And part of that is because that daily loading, if you do it even immediately before your run, it just warms up the tendon. So then once you're doing the higher velocity, you know, uh, impact loading of running, the Achilles is a little bit more primed to have that elastic properties that just will keep your soreness at bay. So I really like having runners do the the easier part of the protocol, kind of the daily loading, prior to going on, out on their runs. When it comes to the heavy stuff, I almost say to do that part after, and that's because it's easier... Hmm, this could go either way, but most runners, I have them do it after because it can be easier to modify that loading protocol um, if your Achilles is a little bit sore. You can either drop the weight or you can drop the reps, all that kind of stuff. At the same time, if you're having to modify the the your weight and or the amount of reps and sets you're doing, that means you're not getting the most important part of your rehab process. So let's say you go out and you do a 30-minute run, and you notice every time you do 30 minutes, you're fine, but then if you do 45, you can't get your your loading protocol in. You're not going to get the benefit from the protocol that you would if you could have gotten all of the sets and reps in. So 
long story short, I like doing the loading after so that people can still feel good on their runs for the heavy loading parts. But if you're having to cut that part short, you have to prioritize the the loading protocol in conjunction with your running. It's kind of like priority number one, get your loading in. Priority number two, continue running to maintain aerobic fitness. So um, I hope that kind of answers the question. It's a it's definitely one of those not one size fits all, but you want to just make sure that you get enough of loading through the Achilles so that it's promoting the changes on the microscopic level that you want to get. Um, And just keeping in mind, I always tell this to runners when they're starting to work on an Achilles issue, the total change of of the collagen fibers can take up to nine months. It's a really long time, nine months. Like that's a long, long time. Your pain should go away earlier, but you got to continue your rehab process for that whole time. Otherwise it has a higher likelihood of coming back because you haven't actually created the changes you want to make. So David, any thoughts on that? Anything you want to add? No, I mean, that sounds, that all sounded pretty good. Kind of an intuitive approach from the pain standpoint and just building up strength around the area. I'm all for it. Yeah. Cool. All right. So I got a question for you now. Again, we're still talking about Achilles. So kind of a fun little mini mini topic. Um, but this is from Robin runs. Um, and it's another, there's two similar questions. The other one is, um, just run in. So one of the questions, is there an ideal heel drop for runners prone to insertional Achilles problems? And then the second question is thoughts on using a higher drop shoe for insertional Achilles tendinopathy. So maybe give us a little on insertional Achilles tendinopathy, what that means, and then kind of take it from there. Yeah, so when we speak in anatomical terms, you'll hear the word origin and insertion pretty often. Origin meaning what's, (laughs) you'll hear proximal and distal a lot too. Uh, (laughs) But origin essentially means closer to the center of your body. So uh, same with proximal, like like closer up to the center of your body. So the origin is where it starts, and then the insertion is essentially where it ends. And the way that is defined is from proximal to distal, meaning closer to the center of your body, further away from your body. So when we look at insertional Achilles tendinopathy, the Achilles tendon, most people are familiar with where that is, but that's where the calf muscles insert and create this thick tendon that you can really propel off of. And that comes down through the backside of your heel on that calcaneus bone and then kind of funnels its way underneath there and then kind of in a way becomes continuous with the plantar fascia there. Not 100% direct there, but like that's kind of essentially the functional um, translation there. And so insertional being farther away from us essentially is down at that lower aspect of the heel. Um, Normally, you would feel this with things that require plantar flexion. So if you're pushing off of it and it hurts, um, or a lot of times if it's really sensitive, any position where it gets elongated. So if you have to like, if your foot and ankle goes up in what's called dorsiflexion, it might yank on that area a little bit, and then it might not feel so good. So that essentially is what insertional Achilles, or the area of the insertion of the Achilles, um, translates to. So as far as ideal heel drop for runners that are in, you know, prone to that, that's a hard question to answer, and that's mainly because everyone's so individualized. You know, I'd be doing everyone who's listening a disservice if I said, "Oh, go run in a twelve millimeter drop shoe. Go run in a." I mean, some people will swear by running in zero drop shoes for the same thing, you know, and some people are like, give it to me in the middle, five millimeter, like, (laughs) so there's (laughs) like five to eight, you know, Uh, I think so much of it is dependent on what you feel comfortable with 
And in the short term, let's say if it doesn't alter your mechanics too much, if a certain drop feels a little bit nicer to you that where you can get through your runs and it's not bugging you, that's okay. Like I'm fine with that. And I, I, I'm, I've done that before, you know, where I've gravitated towards certain shoes where I'm like, oh, my calf isn't going to hurt if I wear this. It's an easy five. I'll just, I'll just wear that or easy 10, you know, and just not take any chances and run in something that I know I can trust. Um, with that said, because it is so individualized, I think there's a couple components that you can look for that might modify the load on that Achilles. I would, when you look at it from a passive standpoint, if you are in a higher drop shoe, that's going to lift that heel up a little bit higher there, almost kind of like you're wearing some high heels. And that's going to shorten the angle on, um, it's going to shorten essentially the tension on the Achilles tendon. It's going to increase your plantar flexion angle, but it's going to decrease the amount of stretch that's on the Achilles tendon. And what that can do is that can actually take some pressure off of it, standing, walking, living life. You know, I've done that before where I've worn like a, uh, like a Brooks Adrenaline or a Mizuno Wave Rider or some of these higher drop shoes out there, um, just walking around for the day. And that has anecdotally has helped me before from as far as choosing it for a run, I've done the same thing and it's done okay for me, but that's not the case for everybody. Some people slam down on the foot and then they end up planting off of that forefoot even harder. And so, um, and for further context too, we do have a full episode on all of this. I don't actually know the episode number. I think Nate's currently working on getting that. If I'm reading his facial, working on it. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if I if I'm reading him correctly, um, his body language. But uh, everyone's so individualized. Some people respond better to having a toe spring up front in the shoe, having a more rocker profile to the shoe where their calves don't have to work quite as hard, but the drop might actually be a little bit lower and that stack height's a little bit higher. And so those are two wildly different designs that can both take pressure off of the calf area and in the Achilles insertional area as well. Now, with that said, some people also don't do well with one or the other, like because of that sensitivity, some of those dorsiflexion moments, some might make you go through a larger range of motion. So I I really hate to be the guy that says it depends, but I would try and put a couple (laughs) shoes on. And if your body feels okay with it, honestly, I'd probably just go with the one that feels okay for that day. And truth be told, I mean, depending on how... I mean, I know it's prone to insertional Achilles problems, so this could be implying that you don't have any problems currently and you're trying to avoid having problems in the future because you've had on and off problems to that region. I think the the greater answer here is to do some strengthening, work around all the muscles, find a, find someone that can help you out with avoiding injuries to that region in the first place. Make sure you're eating well, make sure you're sleeping well. And don't get injured, you know, and I know it's easier said than done, but in the situation that if you do have it, I think it would probably be wise to stick with something that feels okay for your own body and your own mechanics. I I don't think I can sit here behind a microphone and tell you, go put this shoe on and that it'll go away. Yep. I I agree with you there. I uh, first, I failed to find the episode, so I can't tell the number right now. (laughs) No, Um, but... Oh no! You it might me. be seventy. B- VJ, VJ said uh, seventy. Casper, homie, Casper is Casper. Yeah, so it might be episode <laughs> seventy. We hope. Um, but 
you know, I, I think you, you hit it, David, you know, one of the modifications in the rehab process for this is taking you out of positions where there is compression of the, of the tendon itself against the, the bone. And so what David was talking about with changes in the drop and changes in, in the amount of strain put through the calf, meaning the amount of, you know, force it has to produce. If you can decrease some of those things for a season, that can help. Um, but there's also uh, in that episode that we recorded, Matt was talking about how um, some people have compression issues when it comes to their Achilles. So if you have a high drop, that can sometimes exacerbate it, which is where some of that nuance, like you said, David, comes in where, yeah, maybe go try something with a higher drop or a nice rocker that matches you well. But if you're noticing that right away, it's causing that that irritability. And what, maybe not the one you're going for. And one thing we didn't talk about at all too is just the construction of the heel collar and heel counters and things like that that might irritate yes. it from an external standpoint. I know Klein totally. is very sensitive to those things. Thankfully, I'm not that sensitive to those types of things. Yeah, um, but Mostly. there are people that are. And who knows, maybe it has nothing to do with drop at all. And it's just chronic irritation and rubbing to the area. So uh, I, I wish I could tell Robin Runs and Just Running, you know, a more straightforward answer. But it, it does depend, and we're so individualized that, like I said, I'd be doing y'all a disservice if I set a specific shoe for y'all. Yep. And just to confirm, it is episode 70. It's called Can I Run Through an Achilles Tendon Injury? And we actually talk further through the pain monitoring model in that episode as well. So if you want some more details, you can jump back to that. And that was a while ago, so who knows? A lot of people listening probably hadn't heard that episode so could be worth going checking out okay uh next question for you we're, we're exiting the achilles uh region we're just going into general questions that we got um and this is from karav introvert introverta i think i said that right hopefully uh their question is how much proteins per gilo- per kilogram is useful for a runner yeah and i think that's a great question right because everyone always talks about recovery Nutrition, make sure you're doing all those little things right, but no one really ever defines what those little things are. Um, The number that I've always heard has been about 1.5 to 2 grams per kilogram body weight. Uh, Before recording this episode, we did look at this question. I looked it up on the International Society of Sports Nutrition. Thankfully, I was consistent with what they had. Uh, you were on, man. I was you like, had it. I was within a point zero one. I mean, no, point one, point one. Uh, they had one point four to two grams per kilogram uh, body weight. And what a kilogram is is in the metric system, or not whatever the European. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> conversion. Uh, oh man, math is hard. But it's two point two grams. Or my goodness, two point two pounds to one kilogram. That's how that translates. So if you're lifting kettlebells, a lot of times those are in kilos. Um, sometimes you'll. I mean, rarely you'll see plates in kilos, at least here in the U.S. But um, people refer to things in kilos sometimes. So. Um, I'm just going to do a quick little calculation here. Let's just say you have a 150-pound individual and you divide that by 2.2, they're roughly 68.18 kilograms. And so if we're on the lowest end of this, let's say it's 1.4 grams per kilogram, you're looking at 95 grams of protein per day. And so if we're looking at a basic three-meal system, breakfast, lunch, dinner, not counting any snacking or any other supplementation or anything like that, 
I mean, you're looking at a solid 31 to 32 grams of protein every meal. And so it's a lot, you know, and I think people, um, it, it can be a little humbling sometimes to be like, oh crap, I got to eat more, you know? And I mean, we'll put a couple of specifics here. Um, we did kind of list out a couple of things, but when you look at like an average um, serving of protein, people usually imply about 20-ish. Um, when you look at a Cliff Bar, just a basic supplement with, I want to say most Cliff Bars are right around 40 grams of carbs and 10 grams of protein. Um, so if you're looking at it from a protein standpoint, 10 grams of protein, you need three Cliff Bars at least, you know, just to cover the basic like subpar level, you know. And then in one of the meals, in one of the meals, right? Which can be yeah. kind of hefty, right? And if you're looking at most protein bars, um, the basic Costco ones are right around 20. Most companies are right around 20. Every once in a while, you'll see some that are upwards of 30. I think Pure Protein, I think their drinks go upwards of 30. Um, Orgain, I think, is like 18 or 20. I think Muscle Milk's about 20. Um, but most companies kind of center it around 20. And so if you're looking at that, I mean, that's one and a half of those things in a sitting. And those are pretty dense, right? But they're easy calories to put down. And if you're in a time crunch, it's something you could at least get in. But they also tend to bias one one thing, and that's protein. So you still have to get carbs. You still have to get fats. But in terms of looking at the strictly from a protein standpoint, um, we're looking at a little over 30 grams per meal if you're a 150-pound individual. If you're lighter, then you can get away with less. If you're heavier, then you need to eat more. Uh, but looking at it from that standpoint, um, usually if you center piece a protein, like let's say a chicken breast, a steak, something like that, a single ounce around six ounces, you should cover it. I mean, it'll be about 25 to 30 ish, you know, depending on what you're eating for that small, um, that small serving size. Salmon is about the same there. Um, sometimes it can even be a little bit higher. It's always kind of tricky with some of those data values because what is uncooked versus cooked does change, right? Because you cook certain things out, it gets a little smaller. Hard to say. But give or take, I mean, if you center at least one solid protein in each of those meals, you should be okay. But that also implies that you have three solid meals. And a lot of Americans aren't doing that either. And for good reason. We have a lot of time constraints and things like that. And supplementation can certainly help. One thing that I would like to bring up too, because in the American breakfast system, we eat a lot of eggs. I eat a lot of eggs. And um, an average egg is about six grams of protein. You have four eggs, that's 24. So you, people, most people are like, oh, I'll have two. And it's like, well, that's 12. You know, it's a cliff bar. You know, it's like, it's not much. So I think what I want to drive home with this question is just don't be afraid to eat. Don't be afraid to snack. You're, if you're running a lot and you're putting that work in, your body's working hard. I mean, the average person, I, I want to say the number is right around 0.8 grams per kilogram, and that's on the higher end um, for someone who's not exercising. And for most sports at the highest, they're usually about 1.5. So why is it that running is so much higher? It, and it's it's comparable with bodybuilders or someone who's doing heavy strength training all the time. It's the muscle breakdown. You're intentionally going out there and you're breaking your muscles down very... I mean, we take running for granted, but I mean, that's a single leg jump over and over and over again for miles. And our bodies do take punishment from that. And there's a lot of breakdown that comes along with that. And that's why the protein needs are as high as they are. 
So I, I mean, I think that's a great question, and I think I'm glad that we could answer that here on this podcast. Um, but yeah, with that said, I think the take home message isn't so mo- so much like hyper fixate on how much you're getting. I don't think that's the answer either, because if you're constantly getting stressed out about how much you're getting in and hi- like that's not good food eating behavior in itself, and that can lend itself to much other like much more serious things, you know? And I think the the big thing that I want to drive home is don't be afraid to eat. And you can still go on with your life and but just do not have any fear of that plate. Like yep. it's it's energy at the end of the day. Calories are what we use to turn over into ATP and energy to keep us moving, as well as keep our brain functioning on top of just actual movement and performance. So don't be afraid of food. And I think you mentioned it at the beginning. We're not, you know, registered dietitians. Um, Actually, I didn't. Yeah, and, I meant to, but yeah. Oh, you didn't. Oh, okay. Well, I <laughs> yeah, not not a registered like dietitian, not a nutritionist. Like, <laughs> but I I do have a background in that realm. But I, I mean, I don't. I'm not certified or licensed in that world. Yeah, and the point of bringing up all the examples that David brought up, we kind of ran through some in the beginning, just to have some. The point was to give it a tangible picture of wh- how much it is, not to say this is what you should eat. You know, it was not a prescription in that way. I think there's a couple people that I like to follow who are registered dietitians who kind of use their social platforms to share information. Um, one of them is Courtney Burling, so her Instagram handle is eatwell.runbetter. Um, I think she does a great job, um, especially speaking to women who have um, complicated uh, relationships with food and what it looks like to be a runner and try to engage in fueling your body in a way that gives you the fuel you need to run. I think she does a fantastic job. And then um, Megan Featherston, um, she does stuff with Believe in the Run as well. Um, she has a really nice platform as well with really good reliable information. So those are two people that I would recommend checking out. They talk about a lot of this kind of stuff um, from, and they're both registered dietitians who work with athletes. So um, I recommend checking them out for sure. Yeah. And I think totally like one quick little caveat on that too is like, I think this goes along with don't be afraid of food. Um, but when you look at a lot of carb loading protocols, they allow liquid carbs and it's fine. Your body processes it. You're putting a lot of hard work in like juices or like even things that have corn syrup and things like that. Like, I'm not a big component of eating it all the time, but something is certainly better than nothing. And so making sure that you just get your macronutrients in in a way that's manageable for you, I think is is absolutely huge in the recovery process and and just keeping you operative, like just keeping you functioning, Mm -hmm. you know, like that's so important. But anyways, we will move on. (laughs) (laughs) So next question, this one is for Nathan. This is coming from Wivinen. Almost sounds like an Eevee evolution from Pokemon. Um, (laughs) But the question is, is it hard to manage the balance between work, DOR, running, family? It's a great question. It's something I actually think about a ton. But before I do go into it, um, you brought up Pokemon and my <laughs> nephew was in town and he's in a huge Pokemon stage. He's like nine. Oh, he's 10 now. Oh, well, let's go. Um, but he um, kind of introduced Pokemon to my kids. And so my oldest is six and or he's going to be six next month. And my youngest will be four next month. And now they're like, they just can't stop talking about Pokemon, Did which you is know? fun for me because... 
Pokemon was my jam as a, growing up, and it came out at like the perfect time for me. But totally, but, and like to just—I mean, not to make this podcast about Pokemon. I grew up playing <laughs> a lot of Pokemon as well, and then I remember when the Nintendo DS came out, I never got it. So pretty much everything up to the Game Boy Advance, I put hours and hours and hours into those games. You know, multiple level hundreds, all that, and. Um, I I took a long hiatus, and I recently got a Nintendo Switch <laughs> earlier this year, and kind of rekindled it and started playing some games. Fun fact: on the new as uh, a Pokemon Scarlet and Violet, you can actually play online with people and like get a little oh, party fun. together. Yeah, so if you want to go get a Switch, this is my pitch to get Nathan uh, a Switch. So for those in the comments, we could play games together. We could play games together. Yeah, and like if you wanted to have your boys on there and we're just talking Pokemon, we could do that. That could be a thing. <laughs> So <laughs> that segues really well into how I manage uh, the balance of all these things. <laughs> um, you know, there's so much that goes into this question, though. Uh, you know, I, I think that there's a couple unique things about DOR. And I think that the, the type of people that are on this team, so Andrea, Bach, BJ, Matt, David, like we are all on the same team. We know that this is genuinely f- like for our passion to share this stuff with people. It's for fun. Like we try to have fun doing this and we know that this is not like a huge part of like what keeps our, you know, families running, you know, like this is, this is supposed to be something that's life giving to us and we give each other a lot of like grace to go do what we need to do and actually like push each other to like take time yeah, off from I, DOR. So I think I, I, that's how I feel. I don't know if you feel the same, David. No, I, um, I agree completely on the DOR side of things. I mean, we're probably telling each other to work less more often than we're telling each other to work more. Because I right, think we exactly. all have personalities and I mean, we've worked hard to get where we are. You know, I'm not going to you know, beat around that. We have worked hard, and I think we're all hardworking individuals. With that is also the curse of constantly working hard. And I think it's yeah. very important to have another person in the room to look at you and say, chill, like, you're fine, yeah. go eat a taco, like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and then like totally. take a quick break and come back when you're ready and i think we do a good job of divvying things up and and being open to each other because it does take i think we all have open personalities where we want constructive feedback and sometimes the most constructive feedback that you can get is to just take a break you know yeah and not necessarily because there's a performance decline but because some of those other things that were mentioned in that question might be going not off the handle, but like where the balance starts becoming hard. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for me, the way I approach this, I mean, like just to let you into my, my world, which I've shared a bit. So, you know, I'm married to Jana. We have two boys who are six and four, um, who one just finished 4k, but are, you know, Henry will be in kindergarten and Ray's not in school yet. So that's just a certain specific phase of parenting. And then right now I'm in this weird work phase where I'm a part-time clinician I'm an adjunct faculty at our university here in town, um, and I'm in grad school, so I'm getting my degree in educational sustainability. So, And then I'm doing doctors of running as well. So I have kind of a lot of different pieces that are trying to find their way into my schedule. And I think from a big picture standpoint, what I have to do is like on the front end, I've worked really hard to set like what my priority list is. And so like in terms of those time demand things, 
I know like which ones sit on top for me. Like for me, from the list I just gave, and there's other things that pl- that are that that I give time to. I just haven't listed them all, but like time with Jana, and then followed by time with our boys and investing in those hit the top of my priority list by a million. So if I want to know if I'm actually prioritizing those things, I look at my calendar and ask, am I actually dedicating more time to those things that that are flexible times? Like, yeah, you might have a nine to five job or something. But like for me, it's, am I dedicating like the free time that I have actually to those things? Or am I choosing to insert more doctors of running work or insert more teaching prep for the university or insert more work on my dissertation into those times that could be used for what I claim quote unquote to be my top priority. Um, that's kind of how I work through managing that. And I do, I, I work really hard to make sure that that actually gets my time and attention. Um, and then everything else has to be good enough. And at the same time, accepting any consequences that might come from, taking less time towards those things. So when it comes to doctors of running, it's one of those things for me that's on the table as a huge negotiable, where if our life changed to a place where I couldn't give time to it, I would just freely have to let it go. And I would be very comfortable doing that. And Jana and I check in with each other often, monthly, to ask, are we still in a good spot with how much time I'm giving to doctors of running, recording this podcast, writing things on the side, whatever. Um, and if it's too much, this is, this would have to go off to the side. The same would be true about my job at the university or my job, um, with at the clinic or with the running lab and my school. Like, do I need to put school on a, on a pause? So we do an inventory of the time that I've put into those things. And then how is our family, what I claim to be my top priority doing? So I would say, we're in a really, for me, like, is it hard right now? Um, no, I think we're in a really good rhythm. Is it hard to, to do that on the front end and like really, cause sometimes it takes big overhaul to like switch it to what you really want your priorities to be. That's really hard. But because of the nature of a lot of the places that I'm working right now, including doctors of running, it gives me that freedom to prioritize the things that are actually priority. So that was probably more of an answer than I needed to give, but <laughs> that's kind of how I approach it. So let's move forward. I got I got another question for you. Um, we've got we have a lot left. We probably we're already over an hour, so maybe we'll just cut a little bit short. But I do want to ask you this one, David. So yeah. um, Faye, Faye F. Cooper is asking foot shaped versus non foot shaped shoes. Any thoughts or recommendations? Yeah, I think that's a great question, especially because I've noticed in the last year. Um, there's been a big push towards foot-shaped shoes. Um, I've been seeing it pushed a lot too, also in the lifting community as well, where people are like, you need your toes to expand. You need to have some space up front. Um, are they better? I mean, it depends on the individual. Again, I hate to say that, but I will say it's nice to have room for toe splay and have some volume to accommodate for you know natural swelling that you will have when you're running. Will that deter me from putting on a Vaporfly when I race? Probably not. Or like another, I mean, not that I'm going to race all my races in Vaporfly. I probably won't actually. Um, but yeah, you don't. I, I, I don't. <laughs> I've, I've run two races yeah. in a Vaporfly in the last five years, four years. Um, not a very common shoe to see on my feet. But I just said that as, a, as an example of a, a shoe, yes. right, that normally doesn't fit that profile. Actually, the newest one is a little bit better. But um, when I think of a foot-shaped shoe, I tend to think topo first 
because they don't tend to, they have an anatomical design where they're a little bit more slim through the heel and midfoot, but they widen out for the forefoot and toe box. That's what they try to strive for. Ultra also tries to do something similar, but it tends to be a little bit wider through the rest of it. But with that said, they do take into accommodation, like into account that they you need some room up front. I will say that um, they the Topo shoes, at least in the last year, and I think some of this has been more design than anything, not so much just the toe box, but I think the whole package of the shoe, they've been putting out some bangers this year. Like the, there's been a lot of shoes that I've really been liking from that company. Is that because of the foot shape versus other things? You know, it's hard to say because there's plenty of shoes that don't follow a foot shape that I've really enjoyed as well. Like the Saucony Ride, I wouldn't classify that as a foot shape. That's a pretty traditional running shoe last and, um, not that it's narrow through the forefoot or anything. It's I'd say it's about average. It's just not wide, right? And I, I don't know if I have any specific like dogmatic thoughts on this matter where I'm like, oh, you have to go foot shape, you have to go narrow. Um, if you are having issues with that and it's compressing your toes and maybe you're getting bunions or you're getting like this clear pressure or like a numbness tingling like your nerves are getting compressed then i think you probably do need a little bit more space in that area and that would be a wise decision to increase some of the space in that area but as far as if you're not having problems with it or any specific shoe part of that design i think it's probably fine to just wear what you want to wear um hopefully that answers the question yeah i i think it does and a couple of the things that that resonate in my head about this topic, um, one of them is I think there's a difference between what shoes you run in and what shoes you wear all day long, too. Very so, true. If you're like, wearing a tight dress some pe- shoe all the time, yeah. Yeah, some someone might only run you know an hour a week. And so what you run for an hour, is that really going to be the biggest impact on what you could just using the term like foot health, um, that it could be in terms of things like bunion formation or whatever. And I would claim no. Um, I think, um, so I, I do think that it does matter to some degree. Like if you're having something that is pushing your foot one way or another, that can change length tension relationship of muscles, tendons, all that kind of stuff. And like you said, it can lead to compression of nerves or bunion formation. And that's important. If you are running a decent amount, having a shoe that has enough room for splay is good. But it doesn't mean that you necessarily need an anatomic toe box. And it it really depends on what your foot shape is and what the shoe is designed like. One of my biggest pet peeves is um, when I see someone who is very firmly in like the anatomic toe box um, industry where they're creating a product or a shoe that um, like promotes that as the way, what they often do is they show a, like a diagram where they will oh, yeah. <laughs> pretend to like cut out a shoe with yeah. an anatomic toe box and it looks how nice the, sh- the foot looks right. in there. And then they'll cut and they'll say it's a traditional shoe and then it looks like the toes are all curled over each other. And what they're trying to communicate through that is any shoe that's not anatomically shaped is going to compress your foot like this, which is bad for you. If the, if your foot was compressed like it is in those images, yeah, probably not the best shoe for you. But that's not how every traditionally shaped and I don't know if traditionally shaped, non-anatomically shaped shoe is going to actually do to your foot. If we could cut off the uppers on a lot of these shoes for me, I know that it wouldn't be pushing my toes. I have, there's literal like space on the side, just like half thumb length at the end. I have space on the end. So I know those are not adding that compression that would be unhealthy um, depending on how much taper there is around the toe box and stuff. So I think that's 
from the from that side of the dogmatics end of it, I get frustrated when they paint all shoes in a certain category for all foot types and all people. Um, but I do think that there's a ton of value in having enough room for your feet display, especially if it's something that you're in a lot. You really want to make sure that you you know don't overdo it um, in that that kind of a situation all day or running all the time in something that's compressing and potentially causing those issues. But I think the amount of time you're in the shoe matters and does the shoe actually do what some of these images claim to do. That said, I love the feeling of topo fit, you know, the anatomic toe box feels great. Well, so and, and I'm, I'm in on it. They just make nice uppers too. Like they just do. that aside, like the material's nice, lockdown's good. Yep. Yeah, I'm also I'm excited to hear what people have to say about this because I do think that this is one of those trigger topics for people totally. that it, people get really fired up about it. Okay, I have one more question for you, David. Oh man, and then we'll well actually I have one and a half. One and a half. Okay, one and a half. But the first one I'm going to ask you is from Tim Coleman zero eight one zero. What is your bucket list destination race? Oh, that's a good question, Tim. Uh I don't know. I, I wish I could give you like this is where I want to go. This is what I want to race. I mean, ideally, I, ideally Orlando in February, but like that's for very different reasons. <laughs> <laughs> what is that reason for people who might not know? Oh, that would be the Olympic trials. So that would be, I mean, that would be a bucket list right there. You know, to go run there for the performance standpoint. But um, I think I'm at a place in my running journey at the moment. I'm I'm trying to get better. I'm trying to, um, I mean, really just get better, focus on the process and get a little bit faster, get a little bit better at the sport. And so a lot of the courses I'm running, a lot of the races I'm running, and actually the the race selection this last year could have been better. And I actually had a talk with my Mm. coach about that and going to races that are going to set us up better for some success um, is kind of the theme going into this next year. I, I mean, We'll see. I mean, the rear is not over yet, and we're going to still try and make a push to make that that trials mark. I think that is still doable. Um, but going forward, we're going to probably look at race selection probably for the next year or two. So I don't really have any like bucket list destination race. You know, it's like I love the idea of a destination race. You know, where it's yeah. like, oh, I get to go here and have my vacation, and and we can build it around this, and I get to go see all these cool things. But the truth of me racing is more for the racing. I, I mean, yeah. so it's, I mean, I wish I could tell boring. you, it's, it's very, it's very boring. <laughs> it's honestly, it's, it's when I, and it's, and it's, it's hilarious. Cause when you look at my running and my training, it's very boring. You know, it's, it's a lot of miles. I, I do pretty much all, I, I very, very rarely double. So all of my mileage is off of singles. I run probably mm-hmm. 70 to 80 miles a week, you know, so that's averaging at least 10 a day. I have a workout day on the track. I'll have a long run and I'll have a road workout. Usually it's like, it's a pretty bread and butter, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, plan there. So, um, but with that said though, I mean, I haven't done, I mean, I've hardly had any time on the East coast or the Midwest. And I do think Chicago would be a fun race and that would be a good field. And of course to go run fast at, I think it would be fun to go run at New York. You know, I know it's not the fastest course on the planet, but it's a major, I mean, I, I don't get too hung up on the major thing, but it is a big race and it's going through a major city. And when else are you going to get to run the streets of New York and, and see the city yeah. from that angle? So I do think that's a really cool experience that, that you could have. Um, right. 
But yeah, with that said, I mean, I, I, I don't really get jazzed about the location of the race. I wish I did. I, I don't. You know, yeah. it's like no, there's fine. like the Catalina Trail Miler. We got all the Malibu races right here. We've got like, uh, <laughs> there's like so many like you are, cool places. You are the you, destination. Like, there's so many cool places you could go. And like, but even like not outside of here, there's a lot of like wonderful, beautiful places in our country and, a, and abroad, you know, that also have great races and cool areas. But I, I just I'm not as driven by the destination. My destination, I guess, in a boring way, is hopefully running fast. You know, the destination yep. of that makes getting there on that journey. Yeah, I think for me, I um, I've got a couple that I've thought about, and I have I have some that are silly, like destination. I would love to just run the Madison Marathon because that's a city that I love. Went there for school, but when I think about more fun ones, my feasible one that I think I could actually do someday is Big Sur. Um, oh yeah, just looks just looks gorgeous, and I know it's got a, especially for me tons of elevation. Yeah, for it's what a I'm used to. Area. Yeah, but looks but looks really beautiful and fun. So that's one for me. The other one, um, this fits in kind of the ma- It's one of the majors, uh, but doing Tokyo would be a um, destination one for me. I I don't ever I've never like actually imagined myself going to um, Japan, but. If I were to like do a destination race, I think I would choose there just to kind of get the same experience of running New York, but in a country I've never experienced before and getting like the on-ground experience in Tokyo, I think would be really cool. Okay, I've got my last question for you. You ready? This one is from our very own Bach. Oh, no. Uh, our media manager. Oh, Bach. And his question is, you got to kiss, marry, and kill one of the following three. So it's kiss, marry, or kill for you, David. Carnitas, steak, and chorizo tacos. Fuck, I hate you. <laughs> Why? Dude, come on, man. <laughs> oh, man. He's going to be hearing it from me after this. Okay. Um, let's see here. Okay. When I think... I'm just going to kill chorizo tacos right off the bat. Ooh. Nothing against chorizo. Like, um, I think it's good. I like them with eggs. Actually, I probably put those in burritos more than I do in tacos. Um, I it's being the centerpiece of the taco. You know, the protein. What you're wanting to put down. I I would just take carnitas or steak over that. I don't know. So I'll put chorizo on the side there. But um, I think when it comes down to the the kiss and the marry here, I think. When you're talking Mary, I think you're talking consistency. I think you're talking something predictable. You love it all the time. Maybe, maybe you don't some days, but maybe like, like there will be ups and downs. But you're committed to it. But you're committed to it. And it's something that's consistent that you can rely on. And I think for me, that's going to be steak. I feel like steak, a bad steak taco is still going to be pretty good. And a good steak (laughs) taco could make your evening. You know, and I think <laughs> <laughs> I, I think for that reason I'm gonna I'm gonna marry the steak taco. And that's that's hard for me to say because I love carnitas. Like I just love it. But finding a good place that makes carnitas can be hard. And sometimes the bad ones aren't that good. And so I think the the carnitas is like the the that's the kiss. That's the it could go really well. It could not go really well. But you don't. You're not committed to it. You know what I mean. And some some days are going to be better than others. Eh, whatever. But I'll, I'll probably marry the steak tacos. 
Wonderful. Well, thank you everyone for joining us for this mailbag episode. We love digging into your questions. So um, in light of that, if you've been following along with us, if you'd be willing to take a couple seconds to drop a review or subscribe to the channel if you're on YouTube, both of those things really help us out. Um, And then if you want to submit some ideas for podcast episode ideas or questions that you have for us, we are always trying to keep our mailbag growing. Um, And so you can always email us at doctorsofrunning at gmail.com. You can check out our Instagram and send us a message through that, through the direct messages there um, in YouTube comments. And then we also are on threads now. Bach is so happy to have a whole other media thing to, to manage, but that is a very conversational uh, platform that, that we've been using so you can pop over there and enter some ideas for uh, the future mailbag episodes but thank you all for joining us and we'll see you next time